as we as we as we pick up in Acts chapter eleven, you know, we've been going through the book of Acts, and I wanted to kind of bring you up to speed on where we are, especially if you haven't been with us uh, for the last several months. This will help you kind of figure out where we are in the story and help you understand where we're going. So a quick recap of Acts. After Jesus ascended into heaven, all right, he's already, he's already been crucified. He has already gone through the resurrection, and he spent time here on earth. And when he's all done, he has ascended into heaven. Well, after that, if you remember, the Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples, the apostles in Jerusalem. And that was, if you remember the story, they were in the upper room. Suddenly this fire appears in the room and it separates and it lands on each of them. And something amazing happened. They started um, speaking to the crowd. They literally came out on the, on the balcony and they started speaking to the crowd and a miracle of hearing occurred. And everyone heard the apostles speaking in their own language. And of course, there was people from all over uh, the known world at the time that were in Jerusalem because of uh, Passover and then Pentecost. This was actually the day of Pentecost when this occurred. So you remember this part of the story. And then Peter preaches his very first sermon uh, as the recognized leader of the new church. And that church would come to be known as the way, all right? So as we're talking through today and in the future, when you hear me reference the way, the way was what the new church was called. Well, that day on Peter's first sermon day, 3,000 men came to Christ and were baptized. So you might say in one day they became a mega church, uh, but they didn't meet in a building like the American model that we're, uh, most of us are so used to, they met in their homes. And these gatherings included learning about Jesus, um, eating meals together, praying together, uh, singing and worshiping together, and of course, taking the Lord's Supper together. So they were sort of like a mega steepleist church. Get it? Anyways. All right. So um, one of the other things we found out is that they were sharing their resources with one another. Uh, they were not, there is a misconception that they pooled all their money together and then shared it. That is not the way it worked. Rather, those who um, were in need were identified and those who had extra simply kicked in. Um, they sold property. They did whatever it took to make sure that the believers, especially all these new thousands of believers, people to coming to Christ, um, were not in need. And the Bible tells us that not one of them was in need. And that would have meant that they had food, they had clothing, they had shelter, um, which is pretty amazing when you consider thousands of people, many of whom were uh, sojourning in Jerusalem. They didn't live there. It's not like they brought all their possessions with them. Many of those people literally were tourists who simply decided to stay after they met Jesus. So uh, pretty exciting stuff happening in the early church. And over the next several years, uh, the apostles and other disciples of Jesus performed many, many miracles and demonstrated many different gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, that this church, the way, continued to grow. But at this point, they're primarily centered in Jerusalem. While a few people, of course, have gone away, gone home, so to speak, um, most of the way are in Jerusalem. 
Now that all changed when Saul showed up on the scene uh, and Stephen was stoned. Uh, Stephen, of course, was a member of the way. He was the very first deacon in the way. He was helping the widows um, make sure they got their food. And here Saul holds the jackets of all these men who stoned Stephen to death. And Stephen, of course, was stoned for a crime that he did not commit. So after that, Saul starts hunting down the members of the way and imprisoning them. Uh, and, and this sparks an exodus of believers from Jerusalem. Literally, the church was scattered. The way was scattered all over the known region. And believers ran in every direction. And here as we come into chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, we find that there are believers who have relocated as far away as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, if you're thinking, I don't know where Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch are, uh, forget about Jerusalem, that's about 400 miles to some of those points. So imagine 400 miles to us, you know, if you're going to drive 400 miles, not that big a deal. You can get there in, what, seven, eight hours, maybe. These people were on foot, and they were on foot with their families and everything they owned. Now, 400 miles sounds like a really long way, and it is. So the other thing we find out here in Acts 11 is that the Bible reiterates that up to this point, almost all of the evangelism that's happening and the discipleship that's happening is happening with Jews, okay? So Christ-following Jews are sharing the good news about Jesus with other Jews, which makes sense if you think about it. They were sharing with their own community. But here, as we get into the second half of Acts 11, we find out that believers are now starting to evangelize the Greeks in those other places that they have settled, specifically men from Cyprus and Cyrene have gone to a place called Antioch to share Jesus, all right? And they were having great success. Bible tells us that the hand of the Lord was with them. In other words, God was definitely helping them, uh, and they were, they were in God's will. They were doing what he wanted, and he showed up. And a great number of Greeks came to be saved, which is exciting, especially when you think about uh, for most of us, we're Gentiles, right? We are, even if you're not Greek, you come from that lineage. You come from a non-Jewish heritage. Now, obviously, someone on the Zoom could easily be Jewish, but for most of us, this is good news because this is the beginnings of the rest of us outside of Judaism hearing the good news about Jesus. So uh, they were having so much success in Antioch that news of that success reached all the way into Jerusalem. And when the, the members of the way heard about it, they, they sent Barnabas, who was uh, one of their leaders. Barnabas was an amazing guy. Uh, we, we've read a little bit about him leading up to this point. He was a very giving man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas had the gift of encouragement, which can be a very, very powerful spiritual gift. And when he, uh, what they did is they took Barnabas and they sent him to Antioch. And when he got there, he used 
that gift of encouragement. He got there and he, he helped all these new believers stay true to their faith. He encouraged them to follow Jesus closely. Um, and that's really what I want to ask you as your first question tonight. The first question for you to consider is, do you know what your spiritual gift is? And if so, are you using it? So for some of you, uh, you've been on here when we've talked about it. Um, uh, we've shared resources. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, uh, we can easily point you towards free resources that will help you to find it. Um, so uh, I just encourage you, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, to reach out to us either through the chat or through the website, uh, and we will get you hooked up. If you know my, if you know my cell number, text me, whatever. Uh, but if you do know what your spiritual gift is, are you using it? All right. So at least partially because of Barnabas' presence, the ministry in Antioch was thriving and more and more people were being brought to the Lord. And that's where we find ourselves when we reach verse 25, which is our focal verse for the evening. So we are in Acts 11, and we're going to read 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. All right. So now we have two super superstar believers, Barnabas and the converted Saul. Of course, we talked about Saul and the road to Damascus and his, uh, his conversion to Christianity. So now we have literally two of the top uh, discipling and evangelizing Christians in one city together for a full year. And we, of course, learned that, uh, that, and this is what I really want to focus on tonight, that the disciples were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. And that's, of course, what we call ourselves today. We call ourselves Christians. You rarely hear anyone say, uh, you know, that they're a member of the way, for example. But I want to get down to some basics tonight and talk about Christians. And I think the very first question to answer is, what is a Christian? The term itself means little Christs, okay? In other words, people who behave the way Christ did. These believers in Antioch were so Christ-like, they imitated Christ so well that they called them little Christs. They called them Christians, okay? But before I dig into really what that means, I want to talk about what Christian does not mean. What is not a Christian, okay? Uh, once upon a time, Dina and I, that's my wife, if you don't know us uh, personally, Dina and I did something called New Member Workshop at our church that we were at for many, many years. Um, and it was a, a time when people would decide to join the church and they would come and they would hear uh, the pastor talk about uh, all the wonderful things that the church did and how to get engaged in the church. And then they would sit and have dinner with Dina and I. There would be a couple or maybe a couple of couples. Um, and Dina and I would uh, share a meal with them and help them get connected to the church. And 
one of the things that was our job was to make sure that they were really saved, they were really Christians, and find out about their baptism. And it was really interesting because we would, and we would do it in a way that was very um, uh, subtle and, and very comfortable, but we would ask them about their faith. In other words, we would ask them, you know, why do you think you're a Christian? And we obviously didn't say it that way, but, but that was really the question we were, ans- we were asking. And we over and over again would get these answers that, well, uh, let me throw a few of them out to you. Um, one of the most common things we would hear would be something like this. Well, my great-grandfather was a Baptist preacher. And I have really bad news. If that's why you think you're a Christian, that does not make you a Christian. Um, well, I live in the Bible Belt. Isn't everyone a Christian here? No, not everyone in the Bible Belt is a Christian. This one was really common. Well, I grew up in the church, or I've gone to church my whole life. Again, bad news. If you have spent every Sunday uh, morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night in church, that does not make you a Christian, okay? We've even had people say things like, well, I even volunteer to, you know, feed the homeless and things like that. I'm glad you're feeding the homeless. That's awesome. But none of those things make you a Christian. So what is a Christian? What makes you a Christian? Someone who believes the gospel of Jesus and follows him is a Christian. And that begs the question, then what in the world is the gospel? If I have to believe the gospel, if I have to believe in Jesus, and when we say that, you know, around church, we say you have to have faith in Jesus. What that really means is you have to believe the gospel of Jesus or the story, the history of Jesus. You have to know who he is and what he said. All right. So what I've found is when it comes to the gospel, even though we throw that, again, around church all the time, we use that word all the time, I've found that generally speaking, people don't really understand what the gospel is, or at least many people don't. Certainly some of you do. Uh, And for those of you who do, hang with me. Uh, We're going to have some fun and talk about this. So I want to start with some basics, okay? Some some basics before we get to the absolutely have to understand part, I want to talk about some of the important, but maybe not so critical pieces, but things that are part of the gospel that we should know. So I'm going to start with kind of a 10,000 foot view of the gospel. So this is sort of the story of Jesus. So we want to start with Jesus' parents. Jesus' mother was a young girl named Mary, and Mary, of course, was very unique in her motherhood because she gave birth as a virgin, okay? She um, was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, but she was not married, and she had never slept with Joseph. Um, She was still pure, and her father is not Joseph. Her father is the Holy Spirit. You know, we talk about the Trinity. That's another one of those church words. There are three persons in the one God we serve. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who came upon Mary, and the Holy Spirit impregnated her, okay? Not through some sort of physical act. That's not how it worked. The Holy Spirit literally, he, he did it some other way, right? We don't, <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the mechanism was, but it was not the mechanism that we use to create children. And so the Holy Spirit made Mary pregnant, all right? And she gave birth, of course, just like every other lady who has given birth, she gave birth to Jesus. And Jesus was fully man. And he experienced everything that we experience as men. And when, when I use the word men, I mean men and women as human, okay? So he was fully man. Now you're thinking, yeah, but wasn't he fully God? Yes, Jesus was fully God. He always has been God, was God while he was Jesus, and is God still today. But he chose not to use his power. He chose to limit himself while he was on earth to the abilities of a man. Okay, and that's really, really important. He was born in a city called Bethlehem. Now, the reason that that's important is because prophecy told us that this person called the Messiah, we'll talk about him later, was going to be born in Bethlehem. But he was also, according to prophecy, going to be a Nazarene. Well, how is that possible? Nazarene uh, refers to being from a city called Nazareth. How can you be born in Bethlehem and grow up in, or also be a Nazarene? Well, the answer is, Joseph and Mary, when she was still pregnant, had not given birth to Jesus, were, had to travel. And they had to travel because uh, a census had been called. And in those days, they didn't come to your door like they do today and ask you questions. And they didn't send you one in the mail. There was no such thing as a paper census. When the census was called, you had to travel to wherever your family was from and be counted. So they were traveling while they were on this trip. Mary gave birth to Jesus in the little town of Bethlehem, but they were from Nazareth, and after Jesus was born, they returned to Nazareth, so Jesus grew up in this place called Nazareth. He was from the lineage, or his family line was that of David, and that's also important because of prophecy. Prophecy told us that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So that's another one of the pieces that's important for the gospel. This is where it starts to get really important. Jesus did many, many miracles while he was with us. He, of course, he turned water into wine. That was his first one. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He even raised people from the dead. Okay, so he performed miracles, signs, and wonders that absolutely positively couldn't have been performed by anyone else. He also gave us instructions on how to live our lives. For example, he told us that we needed to care for the poor and the widows and orphans. He also told us things like we needed to put others first, okay? He was hated by many, you're thinking, wow, that's not, a, that's not a very good part of the story. Well, it's an important part of the story. Again, it tells us a little bit about the man that we worship, 
the God that we worship, that many, because people still hate him today, right? He is hated by many, um, and he was crucified. In other words, he was literally killed by a means called crucifixion, which means being nailed to a cross, okay, for crimes he did not commit. That's also very, very important. Jesus died on a Friday, and and on the third day, Sunday, he was raised from the dead. Okay, now we're getting into some really important parts of the gospel. He was raised from the dead and was seen by every one of his apostles and then by over 500 other people. That is critical for those who are searching for evidence that Jesus really was who he said he was. Well, if you're raised from the dead and you go uh, have 500 people witness that you're still alive, and by the way, he hung around for 40 days after he was resurrected from the dead, okay, plenty of time to check out and see if the story was true. Um, that's what you're going to do, and that's what Jesus did. He has since ascended into heaven, which is where he is now. And those are all important, but maybe not absolutely positively have to understand parts of the gospel like the next parts are. There's a few things that we have to get right, okay? And, and the first one is that Jesus led a sinless life. Not one time in his entire life of 33 years did he ever commit a sin. He never stared at a woman too long. He never let his anger get away from him. He never committed a sin, which is pretty amazing all by itself. But his sinlessness qualifies him to be the, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. You see, there has always been sacrifice for sin. Ever since God created man, he's had us to make sacrifices when we blow it, okay? Whenever we decide, I'm going to follow myself instead of following God, then we have to pay the price. And that price used to be in the form of animals and, you know, things like that. Well, Jesus was the perfect atonement, which is another word for substitution for our sins, See, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, every single person that ever has walked on the earth or ever will walk on the earth sins, okay? Everyone but Jesus, every single one of us. And just a little bit later, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is eternal separation from God. So if we all sin and that the penalty for that is eternal separation from God, then we're stuck. There's no way for us to pay our debt. Someone, though, has to pay the penalty. And because Jesus was sinless, he can pay our debt. He intervened for us. He went to the Father for us and took the penalty for our sin, okay? If he had sinned, he wouldn't, he would have debt of his own to pay. He wouldn't be able to do that 
but he was sinless. And so he could be the substitution for our punishment. Super, super important. In other words, that's that salvation of, from sin. That's what we talk about so often. If you are saved, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And we are instead given the amazing gift of heaven and eternal life. All right. So the next piece that we have to understand is that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah was a word for the chosen one or the anointed one. All through scripture, all through history leading up to this point, there was prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. In other words, um, people predicted things about the Messiah, and they predicted with accuracy. And there are hundreds of qualifications, according to the Bible, that the Messiah would have to meet. And Jesus meets every single one. He is the Messiah, okay? And this is the most important thing that we absolutely positively must understand. Jesus is God, okay? He's not a prophet. He's not a good guy. He's not whatever other people claim him to be. He is God. And if you wonder why certain groups are excluded from being considered Christians, maybe even if they call themselves Christians, for example, Mormons call themselves Christians, but they do not believe that Jesus is God. That is not part of their belief system. And if you read the Gospels, if you read the story of Jesus, if you read the Bible, you will find that A, Jesus is God, and B, that's the critical thing that we absolutely have to understand and believe. Jesus is God. There are three persons in the Trinity, another church word. There are three persons in the God that we uh, worship. They are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the Son of God. All right, so We've got that down. There is, uh, you know, okay, we now know what the gospel is. Well, he also gave us specific work to do. Specifically, uh, one of the things is something called the Great Commission, which we talk about a lot around here. And that means we're supposed to make disciples. Great. What's a disciple? A disciple is someone who follows the teachings of Jesus. Awesome. But what does that mean discipleship looks like? that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be making disciples. Discipleship looks like spending time with other believers, probably newer believers, and teaching them how to live like little Christ. All right. So I want to give you some examples because you're probably thinking, well, they'll figure that out on their own. Let me give you some examples from scripture that might be a little hard for them to figure out on their own, especially if they're not good, heavy Bible readers. And unfortunately, most of us are not. All right. So I want to go to Matthew chapter five, and, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus preaching what most would consider the, the most important um, sermon he ever preached to anyone, and he preached this message to thousands, I think uh, more than 5,000 men alone, plus all the women and children that were there. And this is a section of scripture we call the Beatitudes. It doesn't really matter why they're called that, but that's, that's what this section of scripture is called, the Beatitudes. And these are 
attitudes that we are supposed to take. So I want to go through them real quick. The first one, starting in verse 3, it's Matthew 5, 3 through 10 that we're going to look at. <clears throat> the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Huh? What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't even sound good to me. Like, I don't really, I don't think I want to be poor in spirit. I'm not sure that's good, right? Poor in spirit means that someone is devoid of spiritual arrogance, that they regard themselves as insignificant as compared to God, okay? In other words, they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think, which is Proverbs. That's a paraphrase of Proverbs 3.7. You'll hear it quoted in other places in the Bible. So does that sound like something that lines up with what the world believes or teaches people to believe? That you need to be humble about who you are? I think it's actually the opposite of what the world believes. In fact, they would say, they, the world would say that anyone's ideas are just as valid as anyone else's ideas. There is no absolute truth, right? And that includes God. Their ideas are as good as God's ideas. Basically, they want to be their own God. All right, so that's one. Let's look at some more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is another one. Mourn? I don't, I don't really want to be sad. So mourn over what? What are we mourning about that we would be blessed for? We're supposed to mourn for our sin and repent from our sin. So blessed are those who feel bad about what they've done wrong and turn away from it, for they will be comforted. Does that make sense? makes a lot more sense probably than it might have before. Now, were you going to figure that out on your own? Maybe. I hope so. But wouldn't it be faster if someone was walking alongside you and explaining it? All right. How about the next one? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, meekness is actually one of my favorite words because it, it really means power under control. Okay. Um, so blessed are those who control their power and only use it for godly purposes. That's what that beatitude really is saying. Well, that would be really good to know because I, I know most of us are quick to maybe abuse our power just a little bit in life. How about the next one? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or they will be filled. That's a real churchy one, isn't it? Um, and this is my next question for you to consider. Do you hunger and thirst for the things of God? Do you hunger and thirst for the things of God? All right, I'm going to keep moving. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Is our world very merciful? It's not, is it? That's definitely contrary to the world. How about this one? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, that sounds pretty good. Pure in heart means moral courage, integrity, and godly character. So for this one, you might say, blessed are those who imitate Christ, 
that makes sense, right? But remember, Christ gave himself up for the church. He gave himself, he literally gave his life for you and me and everyone else who will ever hear this message. So it sounds good, but it ain't easy, right? It's not easy to do, but blessed are we when we imitate Christ. All right, the next one is blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And don't mistake this one for peacekeepers. This is peacemakers, and that's slightly different. Peacekeepers just sort of keep conflict, uh, you know, from flaring up too bad. Peacemakers try to head it off at the pass, right? They are intentional about um, sharing peace with others and keeping others at peace, especially inside the brotherhood. All right. The last beatitude is not the easiest one. Okay. I'm just going to say that right off the bat. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. Really? Persecution is a blessing? How could that even be? I mean, because God says it is, it is, but how does that even make sense? How does being persecuted for my righteousness, you know, why, why would God bless me for that? Uh, just on, it's funny, just today, literally on our way here, Dina and I were listening to another pastor speak, uh, who we really, really enjoy. And uh, he's, he's very colorful. Um, and I really I, I love to hear his messages because he's funny. Uh, but he, he brought something up that I thought was just perfect uh, for tonight's, uh, tonight's message. Did you know that on the island of New Zealand, it's actually two islands, but on in New Zealand, that over 40% of the birds are flightless? They literally don't have wings anymore. They just have like nubs, right? Um, and so almost half the birds can't fly, okay? And the reason they can't fly is because over the generations, their wings have gone away, okay? They don't, they don't have wings anymore. And the reason they don't have wings anymore is because there are no predators that hunt birds and eat them in New Zealand. There are no snakes. There are no wolves. There are no uh, uh, bobcat. There are no wild animals that eat birds. Now think about it. They have no opposition. They have no persecution. Think about your own life. When do you run to Jesus? When do you find comfort in Jesus? When do you find strength in Jesus? When do you focus on Jesus if you're a believer? Probably when you're under persecution. So the truth is, you're never going to learn to fly on the wings of eagles unless you need them. All right. Yeah, that was me. That was not that other guy. You will never learn to fly on wings like eagles unless you need them. All right. So one more question for you to consider tonight on a scale of one to 10. How are you doing on the Beatitudes? 
And regardless of how you would score yourself on all of them as a body of work, is there one that maybe God has convicted you to work on? I know he certainly has convicted me on a couple of them. So all 10 of these things are foreign concepts outside of Christianity. There are, um, there are types of things that Christians need to learn. And again, the vast majority of people will never learn them on their own, which is why we're supposed to walk alongside others. We're supposed to disciple others to teach them how to live the Christian life. I want you to think, what did you do as a parent if you have children, uh, maybe even grandchildren now? If you're going to leave them home alone, what's the last thing you're going to say before you leave home? It's probably going to be the most important things for your kids, grandkids, whomever to remember, right? Like, don't use the stove. Don't open the store for strangers, right? You're going to remind them of the most important thing they need to remember. Well, the last thing Jesus told the, the apostles and the disciples before he ascended into heaven was go make disciples. Just in the last couple of weeks, I was, I was having a conversation with a, a very godly man whom I know and love. And we were talking about how we both really, really want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I think a lot of us want to hear that. And this is what he said. He said, I believe the first thing Jesus is going to say to me is, tell me about the disciples you made. And if I answer with, well, Jesus, you know, I fed a lot of homeless people or, or I gave a lot of money to the poor, Jesus will say, that's not what I asked you. Tell me about the disciples you made. And if I can hear uh, him say that, and if I can tell him about the disciples I made, then he will sell, say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And right now, let's all pray to hear those words. Heavenly Father, we, we hear you. We hear what you have told us. You want us to make disciples. And to make disciples, we're going to have to understand the gospel. We're going to have to understand the story of your son, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to be bold enough to share it with other people. And when they come to faith, we're going to have to be committed enough to walk alongside them and help them learn how to live like you want us to live. Lord, some of us need that for ourselves. I pray that you would put mentors in our paths, that we would be discipled ourselves and be strengthened and encouraged, that we would understand the power that you have given to us. And Lord, for those of us who have already received so much discipling, I pray that we would let it flow out of us, that we would share the, the, the plenty and the bounty of your love with others and that we would make disciples who turn around and make more disciples.
And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So what? Now what? What grabbed you in today's passage? Was there any part of today's message that maybe tugged on your heart a bit? Maybe you're like one of the Greeks in Antioch. Are you eager to learn more about Jesus? I hope so, because it will change your life forever. If that's you, I, I just, I pray that please reach out to me so I can answer your questions about God. Any, any question you have, I would love to answer for you. Maybe you need to spend some more time learning the gospel of Jesus. For, for those of us who are already on this side of the bridge, do you need to learn more about who Jesus was and is? Perhaps you know the gospel, but it's time to start discipling someone who needs to learn more uh, about God. Who are, there are so many people who are, who are hungry and thirsty for the truth, and it's, and it's our job to share it with them. You know, a great way to find a student to disciple would be to start a steepless home group and see who the Lord sends to you. All right. I don't know about you, but I love action movies. I, I do. Um, in fact, my wife is always very um, kind. She will put action movies that I know she doesn't particularly enjoy on its TV for me to watch. Uh, and some of the best action movies are stories about guys or women, but mostly guys um, who break out of jail, right? Um, well, if you like those kinds of stories, join us next week because we're going to hear about a prison break. It's going to be good stuff. Thank you for being part of the Stevelis Church family. We love you. And we'll see you next week. Take care.